Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, a very busy programme ahead of us tonight. Niall Hatch is in Greystones, Aineen Elana is in Terenure, and Richard Collins is in Malahide in North County Dublin. I want to start with you, Niall, if I can. Headlines during the week. Let me find them if I can. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Birdwatch Ireland has described calls for contraceptive pills to be fed to seagulls as flawed and not thought out properly. Or so says Niall Hatch, Head of Development at Birdwatch Ireland. Niall, what's going on? Well, if ever a headline was designed to attract attention, it's certainly that one. Uh, it's been a bit of a media fuss of this over the last few days. Yes, so there was a proposal put through, not a very well thought through proposal in my opinion, um, speaking of my own opinion, of course, that certain contraceptive medication could be given to gulls in, in certain parts of Dublin and other areas where they've been causing problems for local residents and picnic diners and so on, stealing chips and sandwiches and so on. The proposal came on the, on the back of a broadly similar project that's been tried in Belgium giving uh, grain to pigeons to try to control the, the numbers of feral pigeons on city streets. And this grain has contraceptive medication in it that prevents the uh, the, the birds from laying fertile eggs. Uh, now, um, there are a number of issues with this. It's it's obviously um, might be an attractive proposal for some, but our opinion in Birdwatch Ireland would be, of course, we're in a position where these gulls are protected species. We're in the midst of a biodiversity crisis, as recognised by Doyle Aaron back in May of 2019. Uh, and it's not good to be trying to reduce the, the number of a protected species, particularly a bird like the herring gull, where the numbers have declined by 90% in just 30 years. So from that point of view, it's it's ethically and morally dubious. However, there's a bigger issue as well in that I just don't think that this would work. Um, I don't know how you could, could control the dosage so that the birds would take uh, take the correct amount. Um, you don't know how frequently they would feed. Would some of the birds take all of it? Some take none of it. And perhaps even more importantly, how would you make sure that non-target species didn't also eat the food? Because when you're looking at birds like pigeons, in an urban environment, putting out grain that has this contraceptive medication in it, it's kind of easier to target those birds. I'm sure there were still some non-target species that would have eaten that, like sparrows and starlings, for example, but at least it's a bit easier to target. With gulls, they eat a wide diet, but what they eat, lots of other birds would eat as well. Other species of gull might be affected. Who knows? Dogs might be affected when walking by and could easily have an overdose of this. And the thing, of course, as well is that uh, gulls and pigeons are very different birds. They're not biologically similar at all. They're not that close related to each other in any way. So what works for one won't necessarily work for the other. Uh, so all in all, I, I don't think that this proposal has much promise, but it certainly seems designed to grab the headlines. That's Who for was sure. making the proposal in the first place? Uh, it was a Dublin city councillor who made the proposal uh, on the back of work that had been done in Belgium by the city, one of the city councils there. Right. Uh, so that's uh, that's where the where the first idea. And presumably, came from, this yeah. is because people are sick and tired of all the goals in around the city centre. Presumably, yes, and, and, and certainly there. I'll be honest with you, I'm not keen on them myself. I'll be honest, law of a sewers. <laughs> And you and I disagree, and and that's and that's fine, and and I definitely understand that there that there is a nuisance factor there, absolutely, and that people do have problems with these goals. There's no denying that there is an issue there. But the way that I see it is that these goals themselves are not the problem; they're the symptom of a much bigger problem, and that problem is the effect that we humans have had on the environment, reducing their feeding opportunities, reducing their nesting opportunities, so that they're forced to do this. And of course, the issue of them taking food—a big thing that you and I, Derek, do agree on certainly—is when it comes to waste management, the amount of of, of refuse left on the streets. Ain't any Launa, apparently you had an incident with a gull in Herbert Park the other day. 
It happened to me. I was lost in admiration, I have to say, for the call. I was in, in the cafe in Herbert Park, very nice cafe, bought my coffee in one hand and a plate with a croissant, none of your old chips here, a nice swanky croissant. And coming walking out the door, because my darling spouse was sitting over at the table, and I walk across, carrying the cup in one hand and the plate in the other, when there's a whoosh! And over my left shoulder comes a great big herring gull down onto the plate. Oh, as nice as ninepence. Lifts the croissant, hits the cup with his <laughs> wing because his wings are that large and off he goes. And my poor husband is scalded with the hot tea and his <laughs> oh, croissant is gone. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. You couldn't believe it. Hey, the fellow was up on top of the cafe behind me. So when I came out the door, he came from behind. Obviously, he was watching for this. And, and I could have walked sideways or moved or anything and he could have hit me in the back of the neck or missed. No, straight in like an arrow, down onto the croissant. Off he went with it. And I must say, to be fair to the people in the cafe, they gave me a free croissant to make up for it. So a fair play to lollies for doing that. But anyway, I was lost in admiration at the talent of the herring gull, I have to say. Any crowd of other bowsies gathered around him to eat the, to eat the croissant. But he bet them all off, went off with the croissant in his beak. It's a wonder he wasn't back looking for butter and, and jam on it as well. <laughs> so you weren't annoyed. Come on now, come on, Ada, come on. No, I was highly amused. I was highly amused. It was such a bit, I wasn't afraid because it happened so quickly. You know, it was whoosh and he was gone. And it just, oh, I mean, it was just a, an attack from the rear. I mean, you know, a croissant <laughs> in the great scheme of things. What was they wanting a croissant for anyway? I'm too fat. But I mean, the thing was that, that um, you know, it just happened. And, it, and then they all cleared off then. And the next four, four more people came out carrying things. One even had a sausage roll and no seagull went and took theirs. So obviously with Ball's Bridge, very posh place, the seagulls there eat croissants. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen, we got an email in which will be of interest to bird watchers. Richard, you're going to enjoy this one, Niall and Aina as well. It says, hi Derek, just sending this in as a thought you might be interested in. We were on a tour of the Berra Peninsula yesterday, October 5th and spotted something lovely. A white swallow. Oh my goodness, I had to look at the email twice. A white swallow? Yes, it goes on. I know most of the swallows have headed south already, but there are still a few flying about. And as we drove the roads near Uran, I'm not sure where that is exactly, I spotted a few up on a wire by the road. Perhaps the wind blew these ones in from their migration, but lucky us if it did. I kind of did a double take as we drove by, reversed the bus to have a closer look, and there perched happily on the wire was this gorgeous creature. It seems from the photos to be a leucistic rather than an albino bird as its eye doesn't seem pink or red. But apart from the white feathers, its bill, eye ring and feet colour are all non-standard. So it's a really beautiful example of a pretty rare bird, I think. Would Niall and the gang know if it's likely an Irish bird or not from the feathers? Although the rain gods haven't been kind to us in the last couple of days, the wind gods blew this gorgeous thing our way. Enjoy, says Dave from Wolfhound Adventures. Richard, what have you got to say about that? Well, on balance, it's probably not Irish. It's very late for swallows. You still see the odd one, and that suggests it possibly came down from Scotland or even Scandinavia. Uh, so it may be a late-ish bird. Now, uh, leucism, uh, I wouldn't say it's common in swallows, but there are several reports each year uh, in the media of 
white swallows. It's not that unusual. It's due to, for some reason, an inability to produce enough melanin, the blackish pigment, and it doesn't have this. It's difficult for a bird that's white all over to survive. It stands out. Whereas if you are a swallow and you're dark above a hawk or peregrine looking down at you, won't see you so easily because you're a camouflage. But if you're gleaming white against the green field or whatever, you're a sitting duck. Yes, Richard, uh, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, the survival rate for these white swallows is, is not very high at all. Uh, Dave did remarkably well to take so many great photographs of this bird. We have, we have some of them up on the, on the programme website, and it's well worth a look because it really is a beautiful creature, absolutely stunning. Uh, so to answer his question directly, whether we can tell from the feathers, whether it's an Irish bird or not, n- no, unfortunately, we can't. There's, there's no way to tell. But what I can tell by looking at that bird is that it's certainly a juvenile individual, uh, just probably a few weeks old or a couple of months at most. Uh, And I can tell that because in one of the photographs you can clearly see its tail spread out and has a short little forked tail. It doesn't have the tail streamers that you would see protruding from the corners of the tail that you would see on an adult swallow. And that actually is kind of par for the course with this. We do get a small handful of reports of white swallows around this time each year as the birds are heading off on migration heading south to Africa. But sadly we never get the reports in the spring when they're returning. And the reason for that is that these swallows generally don't survive the migration. Part of that is because as Richard said, uh, this bird is a sitting target or easy target for any predators that see it. It sticks out amongst a flock of swallows, so it's easy to pick off and single out in that group. Uh, but also, the lack of the melanin pigments in its feathers mean that those feathers are much weaker than normal. Melanin doesn't just colour the feather, it strengthens it. Uh, so that's why uh, so many birds that are white but fly long distances have black wingtips. Gulls would be a good example of that. A lot of wear and tear on the wingtips particularly. So that poor swallow, if it's flying south, it's not long before the tips of its wings start to fray and abrade and it's not as efficient at flying. So so that's a big Mm. problem. Dave mentioned that he thinks it's a leucistic bird rather than an albino and he's absolutely right. That means that uh, it's not lacking all pigment. It does have some pigment in its eyes. So that at least saves it from one of the disadvantages that a true albino bird would have in that they don't have any UV protection in their eyes so they go blind very quickly. So that's the reason why these white swallows unfortunately Unfortunately, tend not to return to us in the spring, but certainly a gorgeous bird, and Dave did very well to get such great photos of it. Well, thanks very much indeed, Dave, from Wolfhound Adventures. If you want to have a look at the pictures, you can visit the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, Aina, I believe you were on the bog recently with Tina Claffey to talk to her about her book. I was indeed. I was down in Clara Bog, and Tina Claffey, this is her second book of wonderful pictures of wildlife on the bog it's called portal and portal is like a gate and entrance and entrance to the world of wildlife on clara bog and the picture she took the close-ups the the color this form the shape was just a wonderful experience in the book so i couldn't wait to meet her below on clara bog and see what she would show me in reality Hi, Anna. How are you? You must be really delighted with this book, Tina. This is your second one in recent years. The previous one, Tapestry of Light, really, really was a wonderful manifestation of the life that there is in bogland areas. But this one, I think, is even better still. It's gorgeous. How do you take these really close-up pictures of tiny little things? Because things you'd hardly see with the naked eye are taken up half a page on this in glorious Technicolor. This was no mobile phone job, was it? Uh, d- definitely was no mobile phone. It, what I used was a macro lens. And a macro lens allows you to take photographs of flora and fauna in minute detail, in detail that you really wouldn't capture with the naked eye. Th- the reason I got in, interested in macro was because 
back in 10 years ago in 2012 um, I went for a walk with John Feehan botanist and geologist and he handed us on this walk um, a little hand lens and as he walked and talked he was scooping up different flora and fauna and he encouraged us to look through this hand lens um, like a little magnifying glass at what he was showing us and it really and truly blew my mind that there was we were walking on a living carpet so that's what inspired me to invest in a macro lens. And the macro lens works in the very same way really as that magnifying glass in that it captures and it, you can get as close as possible to what I'm, I'm taking a photograph of and, and capture it in, in its full detail. Pictures are worth a thousand words. So we have wonderful pictures in the book of the bog builder, sphagnum moss. There would be no bogs if we hadn't sphagnum moss. So I've picked up a piece of sphagnum moss here and we can see what it is. And I'm going, it looks grand, it's on my hand, I'm not wet. But when I squeeze it, look at all the water that comes out of it. Because that's the whole trick about sphagnum. It's able to hold the water in it, grow in really wet places, rise up with more, carrying the water table with it and then being a base for everything else. And of course, your book so beautifully shows there's lashings of different species. I mean, tell us about the ones you have there. We have so many species in the bog and every colour, of a whole kaleidoscope of colour within the bog of the different species. My, my favourite being the feathery bog moss, which has beautiful feathery limbs that spread out in the water. Um, one of my images in the book actually is taken in winter and it was about minus four degrees. And as I was walking over a tiny shallow bog pool, this beautiful feathery bog moss, which is sphagnum cuspidatum, just saw a little glimmer of green among the ice. And when I looked through the macro lens, I really couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe what I was seeing because the sphagnum moss was frozen, preserved perfectly in the ice. It's, it's feathery limbs outstretched and it was surrounded by a galaxy of frozen oxygen bubbles and it, it really and truly took my breath away. You are really very proud of that picture because it's been used here on your book on the dust cover so really on the front cover inside you have those wonderful little circles of frozen oxygen and then the, the colour coming through the light it is absolutely like a light burst splendid but of course we would think of the bog as a as a poor place not 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 full of nutrients or anything and difficult for things to grow and it is so some plants are really smart and they catch their own nutrients and of course the the bog sundew the sundew is the one that does that magnificently now it's a tiny plant and looking at it with your eyes it's a little kind of red thing which catches the stuff in the sticky tentacles like flypaper but under the macro lens You've taken lots of pictures of these and I'm looking at the beautiful one here on page 66. Take it away, what are we looking at? <laughs> so this is the round-leaved sundew and actually this photograph was taken right here on Clarabog. I really could do a whole book just on sundews because they are so magnificent and they've adapted to survive in the bog because they don't get enough nutrients from, from the bog itself. So they've adapted to become carnivores. So they have these beautiful long tentacles that fan out and at the end of the tentacle there's these little droplets and these little droplets are very attractive to insects because they're sweet but once the insect lands on this um, little carnivore it's doomed really because it is completely stuck and the more it struggles the more the tentacles will be inspired to move and they will close in over the insect and what happens then is quite gruesome the sundew releases enzymes which literally dissolves the insect into almost like a nutrient soup which it absorbs then and it replenishes itself with the nutrients it needs. So it's quite an incredible carnivore that I am fascinated with photographing. 
and we could be here all day because every page is, is a work of art. It's beautiful and it's available and published. Who, who published it for you, Tina? Portal is published by Cork Books and you can find the book on corkbooks.com and the price is twenty nine ninety nine. We'll put this up on our website too. We want our readers to share in this treat. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, Tina. Thank you so much for coming out to the vlog this evening. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Anna. And more details on Tina Claffey's book can be found on our website, which is rte.ie forward slash Mooney. OK, it's time now to catch up with our reporter, stroke biologist, as I say most weeks, Mr. Terry Flanagan. <laughs> So, Terry, I believe this week you were having a look at the fallow deer in the Phoenix Park. It is the rutting season, is it not? It is indeed, and we've been following these deer for, what, more than 25 years now Mm -hmm. since we came on air. We've made that lovely documentary with Dr Tommy Hayden called The Dubliner's Deer. But before we talk about the deer, do you remember the April Fool's Day prank we played in the park a number of years ago? Oh, I do. I can't remember exactly when it was, but the gag was that a giant wall was going to be built on either side of Chesterfield Avenue. Chesterfield Avenue is the spine of the Phoenix Park. If you come from Castleknock Gate right into the city centre, you've got to go down Chesterfield Avenue. One side, you've got Oris Snooktron, and the other side, you've got the playing fields and the residence of the American ambassador to Ireland. And the plan was that there was going to be an April football put on either side of this oh shock and horror people were screaming we were even up there protesting we had placards and everything I remember yeah uh, and do you remember some of the protesters well I was there I think Peter Mooney our late colleague was there Peter Mooney that's right Um, Tomás Mugula that's right, the XTD, Chocodola, and Brendan Nolan. Do you remember Brendan yes. Nolan who wrote that beautiful book on the Phoenix Park? They were all there. And it was considered to be the most elaborate practical joke. And do you remember the year? No, I don't actually. It was a long time well, ago though. It certainly was. It was 2006. Oh my goodness. Well, let's get back to 2022. And October is a great month to visit the park to see the deer because it's the rutting season. And you can watch the interactions between them all. So I met up with UCD postgraduate student Jane Fall to have a look. Okay, Terry, so we've got one of our main groups over there. I can see there's probably about, what, 70 animals in it. They're all lying down on the ground except the male, and he's standing up. Yeah, so that would be probably the strongest male there in the group. He's the most dominant, and what he's doing is trying to defend all of the females there and make sure that none of the other males get access to her, basically. Now, I, I, I can actually see about three other males there, but they're, they're keeping well away from him. Yeah, so they know that he's not to be messed with. If they get a little bit too close, he is going to get very angry and territorial about it. He might try and chase them off or it could end up in a fight. So he doesn't want them getting anywhere near his girls if he can keep them away. So what we have here is the rutting season. And the rutting season is the mating season of the deer in the park. And it takes place mostly in October. This week is a particularly good week. Explain what happens in the rutting season. Normally throughout the year, the males and the females are separated. The females like to hang out on the western side of the park and the males will stay on the eastern side. But when the rut comes around in October, they'll come together so that they can have their mating season. So the boys come over to the girls. The girls know that they just have to wait. And then the the men will come over and do all the hard work. And what they'll start doing then is the males will set up mating stands. So they'll do their best to attract as many prime females as possible. And they'll build these groups like this. So they'll have multiple females. As we were saying, there's probably about 75 individuals there at the one that we're looking at at the minute. And the males will start actively defending these females and trying to mate with them if they're in estrus. So if any other males will try and come in, any younger ones or any slightly weaker males will try to come in, 
the strongest, most dominant male who's taking charge of the mating stand will drive them away and try and stop them from mating with any of his females. So it's the females then that decide to join the group. He doesn't go and actively bring them in. No, he doesn't. He does his best to attract them over with calls and trying to kind of show his dominance over other males. But it's the females who are going to come into the group and choose whether they're going to stay or go. Now, you mentioned the calls there, and we can hear them there in the background. It's it's more like a groan, is it? It is. It's very, like, throaty. Yeah. It's a very strong noise. Once you've heard it once, you'll know exactly what it is. Do they call like that during the year? They won't. No, you won't hear much sound from the males at all during the year. It's purely just kind of showing, I'm the biggest, I'm the strongest, listen how well I can call, basically. They must become adopted somewhat for this time of the year. I do notice they are bigger. They are much bigger. So the males will spend kind of from March onwards trying to stock up on as much food as possible and trying to get as heavy and as strong, take in as much nutrients to build the strongest antlers that they can and to try and increase their neck size as much as possible. Yeah, you can see that, can't you? Like yeah. that big Adam's apple. Their necks are much, much thicker now than they would be throughout the rest of the year and that's so that they can get that really strong call and project their voices as much as possible. When they're calling, are they calling for females or are they calling to tell other males to stay out? It's a little bit of both. So they're calling to be like, females, I'm here, I'm ready if you want to come over to my group. And it's also, boys, I'm much stronger than you. I have a much stronger call. I can fight you if you try and come in and take my females away. There's not much activity on there. We can hear a little bit of the calls, but most of the females, they just, oh, there's a bit of movement there. Now, there's another group there of males, I can see, just to the right. There's probably about six males. They seem to be getting a little bit more active. Yeah, so they're probably subordinate males. Um, So they wouldn't have enough strength or kind of societal, a place in society where they're able to attract all the females by themselves. So they're going to try and piggyback on the back of one of the stronger males groups and just kind of sit and check out his boundaries, see how close they can get to the females and see if they might be able to sneak in and get a chance to mate with one of them. If the stronger male catches them, they're going to be in trouble. You can see they're running off. Oh, I see them. Yeah, yeah. That's... That's another group. Now, that group is probably about 50, no, probably about 100 metres away. Yeah, probably about 100 metres. How many groups are there in the park at the moment now? From what we can see, there's about four or five. I wouldn't be surprised if there's maybe one or two other groups around here, but this does look like it will be most of the, the deer in this area at the minute. Now, I'm watching in the original group there, there's one male there, and he looks as if he's a little bit interested in one of those females there. He's walking around her. I, can you see that there yes, Just, what yeah. does that tell you so he's probably sussing her out seeing if she'd be interested trying to keep an eye all the time on the main male who's defending the group and if he can get a chance he's going to try and mate with her if she's receptive to it and the mating it's extremely fast it's very quick it can be over in like 10 seconds 10 seconds yeah what happens then to the female So after that, the female will normally stay within the group. She likes to stick with her other girlfriends where she's nice and safe and another male isn't going to try and come along and mate her again. If she can kind of just rest for a little while, she'll do that unless one of the uh, defending males gets a bit too boisterous and then she might try and leave if he's just kind of bugging her a bit too much and she's not interested. I see that male there, sir, across you. He's just mounted her there now. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's over before it it's, even it's starts. Over, it's if he over gets, now. If he can, it's over now. If he can pop in and out like he's done. So you do get a lot of sneaking males who can just kind of get in behind the main male. Now there's about 70, as we said, females in that group there. Will they all come into Eastress in the one day? Surely not. Not in the one day. They would all come into Eastress around the same time, just because that would take the pressure off. If only one or two were coming in each day, then you'd find all the males trying to mount only one or two females, and that would be exhausting for her trying to defend herself against all of them. But a lot of them will come in in the same kind of 
couple of days. So you'll always have a good few receptive females so that the males can kind of do their best and try and mate with someone and try and get a bit of success. So how many matings do you think he'll get today? He could get anywhere from like 3 to 20 to 25. It depends how many females are are receptive to him today and how much energy he has to use up in trying to defend the females. If he's spending a very long amount of time trying to defend the females, he might actually get a chance to mate with them if he's forever trying to run off other males or if the group is getting disturbed by people walking over. It's very changeable day to day, but he'd be hoping to get at least five really good matings in a day would be a great day for him. Now, they've all settled down there in the group again, except for our male, our dominant male. He's not so much on the edge, but he's very much keeping an eye on all of them. Oh, he's always watching the girls. He wants to make sure that there's nobody trying to come in behind him or trying to walk around. So he's really not going to get much rest at all throughout this month. He's always keeping an eye, walking around. He might sit down for a couple of minutes, but his main goal is... I want to mate first of all and I want to stop anybody else from mating with the females that I've mated with. So he is always on the prowl making sure that everything is going according to plan. Go back to the adaptations that they have at this time of the year. I presume another one is giving off a scent. Yes. So the males will have a really strong scent at this time of year. You'll often smell it if you're walking through the park. It's a very, very distinctive smell. Mm. You can kind of see if you're walking around in the grass, they'll have dug up a lot of the grass, which is them scratching their smell into the ground, basically. They'll also be scratching their antlers into the trees, which is kind of, this is my area. It smells like me. They'll be urinating a lot. So they're very much marking their territory and trying to make the whole area smell like the best male so they set out their own particular area at the start of every day is that it by doing this and then they try to attract the females in yeah so they'll kind of try and establish an area and then they'll start advertising it out to the females with their shouting with their fighting with their smell they're all trying to get the girls to come over to them Mm -hmm. and what does the girl look for The girl is looking for the strongest male with the biggest body, the strongest, most kind of nicely decorated antlers, because then she knows that he's going to be a really, really good fighter. And if I have a baby, he's giving me the best genetic code to give on to my offspring, which should have the best survival rates then. Now, the antlers at this time of the year, they're looking splendid, but they don't last all year and they'll fall off. They will fall off. Yeah. So they fall off around March time. Is that not a waste? I know, yeah, you would think you're putting so much effort into growing these beautiful antlers and then you're dropping them every year. But I suppose it's a very easy way for us to age the males when we're looking at them because their antlers look very, very different. Even the, the shape and the design of them changes so much throughout their lifespan that they kind of need to restart each year and keep growing them again and again and again. Now we can actually hear in the background there the clash of the antlers. Yes, so that's... I can't see the two of them, but I can hear it. You can always hear it before you see it, I find, and it's a very distinctive noise. It almost sounds like thunder, or if you got two really big sticks and smacked them together. Um, So that's two males somewhere that are fighting. So someone has gotten a little bit too close to a dominant male's group. They've sized each other up. They've decided maybe either one could win, so they've decided to engage in a fight. This is very energetically expensive for them, so you have to be really sure that you could take your opponent before you enter a fight. Is it dangerous? It is very dangerous. Their antlers are very sharp, their bodies are huge, they're really, really powerful animals, and they will literally just run headfirst into each other, lock antlers, and keep pushing against each other until one gives up or one gets super injured and can't fight anymore. Now, when you say super injured, I've seen deer with cuts on their head and forehead and things like that. Have they ever lost an eye? 
have they ever lost an eye? I'm not sure if they've ever lost an eye. I have myself as well seen a lot of uh, head injuries. You get a lot of injuries on the sides of their abdomens as well because you can have two males who have their antlers locked and they're engaged in a very serious fight. And then another male would be like, oh, I can kind of swoop in and take one out now if I try. So he could enter the fight, a completely independent third body, enter the fight and just ram into one from the side with his antlers. So you can see a lot of damage on the side of the males as well sometimes. I would have thought that that male would have been looking at the group of females rather than the two males fighting. I know, you'd think that would probably be a better use of your resources, but some of the males, I think, I don't know, they kind of see their opportunity to take out a really good fighter with a little sneak attack, and they'll take their chance there. Now, there's another group just about 100 metres away, as I said. Can we go down and have a look at them and see what they're up to? Yes, let's have a look. So we've moved down here about 100 metres, And on the edge of our original group, there's something like six or seven males. Tell me a little bit about what's happening here. Yeah, so we've got a couple of males kind of hanging out on the periphery of the group. They're not too engaged in the mating stand at the minute, but they're staying quite close. They're keeping an eye out just in case they might get a chance to pop in, but they're not trying to push any boundaries quite yet. They've found a spot where the main male doesn't seem to be too bothered by them, so they're just going to kind of hang out there and see what can happen for them. Would you recommend it for people to come up to visit the park at this time of the year to see what's happening? Oh, definitely. It's a lovely time to come up and see them. And it's really interesting because I think it's not really something that you get to see that much in the wild to get these opportunities to see them having these mating stands and having these fights and vocalising. But the only thing I will say is that it can be a very dangerous time for people to come as well. So just make sure if you are coming out to have a look that you're keeping a good distance away from the deer. So I presume at least 100 metres. Yeah, 100 metres should be okay. The thing that people kind of forget about is when they're watching them and they're super, super interested seeing the fighting, it's very easy for the males to just suddenly take a 90 degree turn and suddenly they're charging in your direction without taking any heed of you. So as long as you're keeping a safe distance and aware of your surroundings, making sure nobody's coming up behind you, then it's a lovely time to come down and have a look at the deer. Because here at the moment there are probably 10 people watching the deer and in fairness no one is anywhere near the deer and they're not disturbing them. No, they're not disturbing them at all. Everyone's keeping a very respectful distance. And you can see the deer are completely engaging in their natural behaviours. We've seen some vocalisations. We've seen some males running off subordinate males. We've even seen a couple of matings. So the deer aren't too stressed out that people are that little bit of distance away. But yet people are still able to watch them and get a look at these natural behaviours. But that's not the case all the time. Because as we know for the last couple of years, people have developed this habit of going up to feed the deer. The deer have become quite friendly, quite tame and they're feeding them it's not a good idea no it's not a good idea feeding has become a lot more popular in the past couple of years and the deer seem to be engaging with it quite a lot but the thing that we have to bear in mind is this is not a natural behavior for them to engage with and that's what you're studying too that's part of your thesis yeah that's part of my thesis so i'm looking at how people feeding deer is changing their natural behaviors and particularly i'm looking at how it's changing their space use when they're having their fawns in june so i presume you would advise no feeding of anything to the deer no we don't we don't advise any feeding to the deer it's really not good for them in the long term and i know people like to do it to get this kind of sense of connection with nature and with the deer and they are really beautiful animals and i totally understand why people want to go over and approach them but it's really in their best interest for us to keep a safe distance get as many pictures as you want use your camera put your phones to good use and get your pictures but coming up to approach them is really not a good idea for them and the other problem of course which has been here for years and years and years as long as i remember is the possibility that they may be hit by a car 
Yes, that is a very real possibility, especially because a lot of the time feeding hotspots are around the main roads because people will come and park their cars and then get out and try and interact with the deer. If you've got a very large group, the odds are quite a large proportion of them don't actually want to engage with the feeding. We've kind of found that there's about 20 to 25% of the population who will regularly engage with feeding. That's th- very large, isn't it? It is. It's surprisingly large. It's and kind is it of growing. It could be growing over time, yeah, we're looking into that now at the minute. But what you see is there's individuals within a group who are getting approached who do not want to be anywhere near people. If people start walking towards them, they're running away. And if that's happening near roads, there's the potential for car accidents, which are an issue for both the deer and for the person driving the car. I've personally seen deer running across the roads where people are trying to walk across paths. Cars are coming at a very high speed. Luckily, I haven't witnessed any accidents myself, but it is only a matter of time if you're out here for long enough watching them. Well, one of the good things that the OPW have introduced is the speed limit on the uh, Chesterfield Avenue, the main avenue in the park. It's down now to 30 kilometres per hour. Has that made a difference? Yes. That should be a game changer for deer accidents, but still people need to be careful when they're interacting with the deer along the edges of the road. The deer generally are quite aware of cars that are around them, but when you're getting them into this highly stressed state of constantly being pursued and people constantly trying to interact with them, they're not looking around their surroundings as much. They just want to get out of there, so they will just run onto a road if it's there and if it's that's their escape route that they can see. And of course, at this time of the year, it's going to be worse. It's going to be much worse, yeah. So going back to the road, what advice would you give to people if they're coming up to the park? Listen out for them. You'll be able to hear them calling. You'll be able to hear them fighting. If you're getting too close to them, back that little bit up. Make sure if you're taking pictures of them that you're looking away from your camera every now and again to make sure that you haven't accidentally started walking closer to them or they haven't accidentally started walking towards you. As long as you're keeping a safe distance, it's a really great opportunity to come out and have a look at the deer, see them behaving naturally and see what kind of stuff they get up to at this time of year. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. Aina, I want to ask you about wild mushrooms. This is the time of year we see them. Absolutely, well, mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of the, the fungal strands underneath the soil and it's like flowers in flowering plants. These these caps contain spores, which is how the mushrooms then will reproduce. And some of them have beautiful tastes and people collect them and eat them. And some of them look exactly the same and are deadly poisonous and will kill you. So really and truly, it is absolutely essential not to be identifying things that you look at on the internet, pick up a mushroom, look at it on the internet, oh that looks the same I'll eat it. First of all it mightn't even be growing in this country, the thing you're looking at might be in another country where it's edible and the thing that you have here is not and in actual fact if you eat the wrong thing it can cause deadly damage to your liver it can cause liver poisoning now Hubert Fuller is the man I consult when I get queries in for the eye on nature, he used to be my lecturer in college all those years ago in UCD and I run them past him to make sure that um, I'm giving the people the right answers and Hubert was telling me the other day that five people this year at least have been admitted to hospital for eating mushrooms and giving themselves severe liver damage. One of them, I I believe, is supposed to be waiting for a liver transplant. So do not gather and do not forage and do not pick mushrooms and think they look like something on the internet and eat them. You can really do damage to yourself from mushrooms. Niall. 
absolutely, Aina. I would certainly echo that. Um, people should leave well enough alone um, if they're not certain what they're doing. So I would always advise people not to not to go near mushrooms. Enjoy them from a distance. Don't eat them. That's what I, what I would say. So some of the species of mushrooms are incredibly toxic uh, to the extent that for some species around the world, there's absolutely no cure. It's certain death if you consume them. I remember when I was living in upstate New York, there's a lot of people there who would go mushroom foraging. There's many different species, not necessarily ones that we would find here in Europe. And I remember a story widely reported in the local papers of a woman who had been out foraging for mushrooms. She'd found one that she thought was edible. She had cooked it and eaten it and then started to vomit and feel very, very unwell indeed. So she was taken to the hospital and the doctor checked what mushroom she'd eaten and basically told her, uh, I'm afraid that you only have maybe four days to live. What will happen is you'll feel sicker and sicker and then towards the end, you'll all of a sudden feel quite well again and then you'll die from complete liver collapse and organ failure. So it's not something to mess around with. It really is a really serious topic. Um, you know, it's, it's also... You can see it in the natural world most animals give mushrooms a wide berth as well uh, there's certain uh, animals would have a better sense of smell or, or, or able to be able to distinguish between the, the poisonous species better than we could deer in particular and um, following up from terry's report there deer are known to, to like to like mushrooms and indeed reindeer are actually well known for liking to consume certain types of hallucinogenic mushrooms uh, it seems that they they do get some sort of a buzz or a high off these things to the extent that um, local people in parts of the arctic would even collect reindeer urine and actually drink it so they could actually get the same chemical high from the mushrooms through the deer. Well, why are we talking to you about mushroom gathering? And can I just repeat, we are not suggesting that you do that. This is the time of year you see the wild mushrooms in abundance. But as Aina said, don't do it. Stand back, admire them from a distance. Do not touch them. Do not eat them. And we say the same thing. Anyway, we're bringing this to your attention because we're about to speak now to our vet, Andrew Byrne, from the Bray Vet in County Wicklow. October is Arthritis Awareness Month for animals. Andrew's going to talk about that very shortly. But earlier, Andrew, I believe somebody came into the surgery with their dog who had eaten wild mushrooms. What happened? Uh, that's right, Terry. Just as I was rushing out the door to talk to you, uh, a dog came in who had eaten some mushrooms in the back garden. Luckily, he was okay. Um, we had to do some blood tests just to check out his main organs. And that's something we see very often, but on rare occasions it can be very, very dangerous. What do you do in a situation like that? If they present with the neurological um, symptoms, which are usually uh, overexcitability or seizures, then we have to use medication to calm them, like sedation-type medication, and in some extreme cases, even anesthetize them if the seizures are very bad. If they're the type of mushrooms that would give rise to liver or kidney damage, um, it's mainly supportive treatment, um, which would be IV fluid therapy to keep them hydrated and, and, and initially to identify if there's a problem there with blood tests. If it has happened recently and they come straight into us, then we will um, intervene with a, an injection that makes them vomit. And of course, if we can get the material back out again quickly, it prevents uh, any serious consequences. But if it's been a few hours and the symptoms are already there, then it's, it's supportive treatment. Now, luckily, most dogs are fine and most dogs survive. It's rare that they die, but it is occasionally, on rare circumstances, if they eat enough of them, it can be very serious. But how do you know what a dog has been eating? What kind of symptoms does it present with to its owner in the first place? If you say it doesn't manifest itself for a few hours, how's the owner going to look at this dog and know, well, I think you've been eating wild mushrooms. I better get you off to the vet. 
Yeah, and the, the, the owner this evening now very unusually had got a photograph of the mushroom and had used an app to identify it. So we knew that in this case, the mushroom was one that could affect the kidneys. The symptoms the owner would look out for would be if it's one of the neurotoxin mushrooms, if they present with uh, tremoring and agitated and muscle twitching um, and, and overexcitable and uh, overreacting to light or sound. Um, they, they would be symptoms that would occur very soon after ingesting the mushrooms, usually within about an hour. Um, if it's the types of mushrooms that affect the organs, like the liver or kidneys, unfortunately, the symptoms are pretty silent uh, for maybe one to two days. There may be gastrointestinal upset, like vomiting or diarrhea. Um, but if it affects the kidneys and liver, then they sometimes don't become ill until a day or two later. And um, with both of those organs affected, you'd have a dog who would be off their food, potentially vomiting, potentially drinking excessively. So they would be the main range of symptoms that um, you'd look out for. Be careful if you're walking in the woodlands, particularly this time of year, if you've got your dog with you is the message really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just to be careful if you do see them foraging for them, just to, to pull them away. And luckily, it is quite rare. And, and I suppose maybe it's a surprise that it is so rare. Um, but fortunately, we don't see many cases. And um, the cases I have seen, interestingly, have mainly been dogs who've got mushrooms in their own gardens, and uh, particularly around compost heaps. So certainly if you've got a compost heap, just to be careful to fence it off or if you see mushrooms growing there to dig them up, because uh, most of the cases we see are actually at home. Now, Andrew, you also want to talk to us about arthritis in animals because this is Arthritis Awareness Month. That's right, Jerry. Throughout October, there's an awareness campaign to increase our awareness of arthritis in our pet animals. And of course, it's also of of interest to wild animals because this is also quite a big issue for wild animals and their survival, as well as being a huge issue for the comfort and animal welfare of our pets. But you're particularly interested in cats, Yes, we're quite interested in cats because we used to think that arthritis wasn't as common in cats, but we realise now from recent research that the prevalence of arthritis in cats is very, very high, uh, even higher than dogs, and yet we're not as quick to recognise that. And so we're looking into what are the signs that we need to recognise and why is it that cats don't show the symptoms as clearly? And is that related to the fact that the cat is perhaps a little bit more wild in their behaviour compared to dogs and maybe that's what's masking the signs and making it more difficult for us to recognise the disease in that species. And there may be several reasons as to why this is because certainly behaviour of cats is different to dogs. They're much closer to the wild animal than the dog is and their behaviour patterns are much more closely linked to their wild feline ancestors. And of course cats are predators but they're also prey for other animals and the, you know, in the wild, it's certainly not a good thing to show any signs of weakness um, or frailty or you're more likely to be picked up by a predator. So there's certainly potentially a tendency to hide pain, but also their behaviours are, are different. You know, cats in their movement are very different to dogs. For example, they don't move horizontally. They tend to want to climb on things and want to be able to jump, and that's what they would do in the wild if they're trying to evade a predator. So in, in trying to determine if a cat may have joint pain, we need to think about their wild behaviour patterns and see, are are they changing? Andrew, uh, this is a very interesting subject. I just wonder about dogs versus cats. 
you mentioned that the cats are closer to their wild ancestors. Now, we have bred dogs selectively. They were once wolves. Now, if you look at wolves, they wandered enormously, covered huge distances running and, and walking. The modern dog does a lot of that, but nothing like as much as its ancestors would have done. Do our frames wear out with time? Is the dog's frame much slower to wear out than it used to be? Now, if you look at a cat, a cat isn't a wanderer. It doesn't use its frame that much. It is a stealth hunter, an ambush predator. It waits and it needs its limbs for the pounce. But that's all. It's not wearing its limbs out all the time. So its lifestyle and dependence on its frame and its skeleton is different from that of dogs. Yes, that, that, that's certainly true to extent. Cats do are much more agile than, than dogs and they probably haven't got the same amount of percussion pressure on the joints as, as dogs have. But what's interesting is in the study is that it does appear that in fact their arthritis levels are actually as bad as in dogs, but it's just that we're not, we're not seeing it and we don't recognise it as easily. Um, we, we know that other animals who don't weight bear, for example, um, uh, sea mammals, um, there's evidence of arthritis in, in their skeletons. Um, so even in the very agile stalking and pouncing action and jumping action of cats, they're still loading the joints with pressure. And I suppose in order for us to recognise if they have got arthritis, we need to be aware and observing them to see are, are they actually able to continue to carry out those behaviours. So whereas a dog may limp, in cats their arthritis tends to be more of a polyarthritis, it tends to affect all of the limbs at the same time. And what we tend to see is a cat who's not able to jump as well. They're not jumping up onto counters. They're not able to climb as well. And in the domestic home, that will be noticed in terms of perhaps going up and down stairs. They're more slow going up and down stairs. They're reluctant to jump up on the counter anymore. They also may start to develop mats because for cats, like wild animals, the grooming is terribly important. But if they have arthritis and discomfort in their back, they can't twist around as they normally do to groom. And so they tend to become matted. So it, it does appear to be not so much that they get less arthritis, but that the way that it affects them is not as obvious as we would recognise in other domesticated species. You mentioned sea mammals. Now, the Greenland shark, it is said by some to live for 500 years. Now, is that uh, immune from arthritis, an animal that lives for such an enormous time? A cat might live 10 or 12 years and it has arthritis, and most of them seem to have arthritis in old age. But is this universal or is it confined to cats and dogs? It seems to be universal. There's good evidence that most wildlife do suffer from arthritis. Interestingly, the very small mammals um, don't seem to very much, um, but larger mammals, certainly primates, uh, it's very common, and of course they walk and move to some extent very like, like humans, uh, but larger mammals do show signs of arthritis, and certainly grazing animals like moose, there's been a lot of studies done, longitudinal studies done on, on moose, and they find that arthritis is quite prevalent in them. Um, and interestingly, in the wild where they're preyed upon by wolves, they found that the levels of arthritis over a period of time, over generations in the population, actually decreases because the animals with arthritis are unable to, to, to flee as quickly and they're not able to kick and defend themselves against foxes. So where you have a, a stable population of wolves and moose over decades, 
the overall level of arthritis in that population in fact will decrease because the ones with arthritis are picked off early. So it, it, it seems to be quite ubiquitous and it seems to affect a wide range of mammal species with the exception apparently of the very small mammals. It's not as prevalent in very small rodents. Is it in fact an autoimmune disease? Is it the body killing itself or damaging itself, uh, as some people seem to think? And if so, how is it that over time, you mentioned the moose uh, surviving, some of them surviving, have lower levels. Surely that kind of pressure on things like moose and animals generally would breed out a tendency to develop arthritis. Arthritis in some cases is an autoimmune disease and um, that's the less common type. Uh, Osteoarthritis is thought to be largely uh, an effect of wear and tear on the joints and that can be predisposed to genetically by the shape and the efficiency of the joint. So if an animal is is born with a joint um, that is inefficient, uh, for example a hip joint where the ball and socket don't fit together smoothly, or a knee joint where the slope on the top of the shin bone is too steep, those type of conformational changes which are genetic will cause that joint to have excessive wear and tear over a period of time. And then the older the animal lives, and the more active they are, the more wear and tear that will occur. It's also recognised too that nutrition can have an impact. And in both domesticated animals and in wild animals, there's evidence that if there's poor nutrition in the first year of life, that that will predispose them also to the development of arthritis as they get older. And, and certainly they're less likely to, to survive, but of course many of them will have bred before they've died, directly or indirectly, from the arthritis, so they're still able to pass on those um, genetic tendencies. Uh, it, it, as they go through life, arthritis is a slowly developing progressive disease, so it tends to affect them and they tend to fall to prey when they get older and haven't reproduced already at that point. Is brain overbrawn a factor here? In other words, as an animal gets older, it's less strong physically, but it has knowledge and experience savvy. It's streetwise now in a way that younger animals aren't. So it's able to get out of difficulties by being shrewd and calculating and cashing in on its rich experience to survive. Is that a factor in the survival of older animals? I certainly think it is. Um, and animals certainly, as they go through life, they, they do learn, they adapt to infirmities and, and find a way around that. So to some extent, they'll be more alert to danger, they'll be more inclined to hide or seek shelter. They're more experienced. Um, but I suppose ultimately, when it, there's a battle between predator and prey, uh, when it comes down to that final chase, that's where the arthritis unfortunately um, will take its toll uh, because their speed is limited, their ability to defend themselves is limited and in animals who need to climb to to get shelter uh, are are, are not able to do that as fast. And of course in a domesticated situation that doesn't matter because we intervene and we're providing food and we're protecting from predation and we're able to treat the arthritis. And, and so with modern treatments in domestic animals, they live to a, a ripe old age, and arthritis is not a, a life-limiting disease. Whereas in the wild, of course, it, it, it would be, and it would be a significant factor in loss and in the, the natural selection from a herd. The animal that comes to mind in Ireland, wild animal that is, is the hare, because a hare relies very much on its speed and its ability to turn and twist to keep itself alive. I've read that some hares 
old hares now that have arthritis and are less well able to run away, that they sometimes turn it to their advantage and they go and display at a fox or a predator so that the fox thinks, oh, this hare sees me, there's no use chasing him. Even though he could chase and would catch the hare, he doesn't know that. The hare is deceiving, using his impediment to deceive and survive. Have you read about that? Is this really true? I haven't read about that, Richard, in hares, but it's interesting that cats actually tend to adopt the same behaviour pattern. If you, if you watch a cat um, who sees a dog walking down the road, the cat rarely runs. Um, they tend to sit and stare at the dog and watch the dog. And of course, that cat is, is calculating. He knows his escape route. He knows how quickly he can get there. He knows what he can climb onto. But if he holds his ground, he knows the location of the dog he's watching them but he's also sending a very strong message to that dog he's projecting a very strong body language that i'm not afraid of you i'm strong you need to be maybe more afraid of me than i am of you so we certainly see those sort of behavior patterns um in cats and so i'm I'm not surprised to hear that hares would actually adopt um the same strategy could there be an element of planned obsolescence in this In some animals, the male particularly sacrifices its, and females too, sacrifice themselves for their offspring because it's in the interests of the offspring that there should be no competition for food and resources by parents. I'm thinking of eels, I'm thinking of Pacific salmon, many insects, praying mantises and things of that kind. It would be in the interests of an older animal's progeny if it was to die off conveniently and leave the table and the food to its offspring and their offspring. It would be genetically valuable to develop arthritis on that model because uh, you would bow out at the crucial time and that would ensure the greater survival of your genes than had you survived. That's a, it's an interesting point, Vision. Certainly, I think potentially with male animals, um, that that could be of the benefit to the benefit to the population. If the older male animal bows out, then he allows a younger, stronger male who potentially has better genes to come in and 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 mate, and then potentially that would be a benefit to future generations with within the herd. And I, I'd suspect that in terms of natural selection that that is where it would have a benefit to the genetic quality of the future generations. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. And more details about Arthritis Awareness Week in animals can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland and our researcher is John Bella Riley. Until next week, at the same time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney. And as you just heard, you can check out more on rte.ie slash Mooney.